Jonah chapter 4. Jonah, the fourth chapter. You're going to weigh some people tonight, Scott? Scott Elliott brought in the weigh, weigh scales. He's going to weigh you all when you leave tonight. See how much you ate? I'll be in a lot of trouble. Jonah chapter 4. Some of you have been here all the time. Some of you have been here uh, several times. Some of you, this may be your first time on the Jonah study. So I wanted to uh, just give a couple, three highlights and uh, talk about Jonah's dilemma before we finish off the chapter. We learned in the first, the first night that God does not give us authority as believers in Christ to qualify who is fit and who is not fit for salvation. That is not in our hands. God does not give us that authority to qualify. In fact, there is no group that has exclusive possession of the gift of salvation. It is available to all. And uh, we joked about people that we may put on our disqualif disqualified list, but there is no list like that with God. And we have to accept that those who God saves, God is indeed called. The second night we learned that we, we serve a supernatural God. And that supernatural God is capable of miracles that are consistent with his sovereign will. Always with his sovereign will. But he does supernatural things, like we've heard uh, this very evening. And perhaps you're saying, well, I'm a, I had a situation in the last three or four years where it didn't work out that way. Um, our hearts, God's heart would go out to you. But God works within his sovereign will. And someday we'll all understand. But he's a supernatural God. And you remember we tried to determine whether... Uh, Jonah resurrected during his time in the, in the belly of the great fish, or whether he was alive for three days and three nights. And we determined that either way, because there are scholars on both sides of that issue. Some say he never did die, he was just inside for three days and three nights, and then the fish spit him out on land. Others say he was dead while he was in the fish and resurrected. Either way, it's a miracle, is it not? Either way. I don't know of too many situations that we can draw from where, where people have gone through that experience. So we serve a supernatural God that is capable of miracles with it that would be consistent with his sovereign will. Last week we, we learned that God is immutable, which you know means that he does not change, that he changes not. And uh, we had to deal with something in our, in our scripture last week because it said he did change his mind that the scripture says he did relent uh, in regards to the Ninevites. And I hope that I explained that to you. The word is anthropomorphisms. And that is a big word to say this. The Bible sometimes, and it's done it several, probably hundreds of times in the scripture, the Bible sometimes will ascribe the attributes of a man to God to give us better understanding. That's anthropomorphism. And so God, God did not relent. He can't relent because he is immutable. He can't change. But it gives us an understanding that something happened. And what happened is the Ninevites changed. They responded um, to what Jonah uh, brought to them in, in chapter 3. God never changes. But you will see times where you see attributes of man given to God so that we can better understand. And remember the example, hands, the hand of God? He has no hands, he's a spirit. Um, and so there are lots of examples like that. So that was the third, third thing we learned. Hopefully we'll have an action point to learn tonight. 
Now, what's, God, what's Jonah's dilemma? Last week, two or three times at the end, I called him hard-headed. Uh, and I still think he is. Uh, Jonah's a hard-headed dude. Uh, I know because i got a little hard-headedness in me. And I think many of us in here probably do. But Jonah may be the champion. He's a hard-headed man. And uh, he's in a dilemma. And part of his dilemma is this. He sees, him, he sees himself standing with the rest of the prophets of his day who made pronouncements that he believed would be irrevocable. And he believed that all sin must be punished. And yet God changed things that were consistent with God's sovereign will. So that's a dilemma with him. He's got an insecurity complex. Uh, he's, he's afraid of being called the false prophet. Going back to Israel and walking around and people say, there goes old false prophet prophet Jonah. Can't trust what he says. Doesn't come to pass. It, it is not a fulfilled prophecy. And so he, he has an insecurity complex and a fear of being called a false prophet. Afraid he'll lose his credibility with his countrymen. And so he's got that dilemma. Here's another one that's very interesting. In, in my study, I, I picked up a couple things I want to share with you about this one. But Jonah, we call it global nations here. Glo uh, Jonah did not understand Global missions, Jerry, when they said go. Twice in here it said go. God told him, go to the Ninevites. Now, uh, this is really not a missionary passage, even though God tells Jonah to go twice. In fact, you've got to think in terms of what, how God worked in the Old Testament and how God worked in the New Testament. Now, this is Old Testament stuff. And Israel's charge to witness in the Old Testament was different than the charge that you and I have now since we have the New Testament. Know this, that Israel is located at the crossroads of the world during this time that we have here in the Old Testament. They're at the crossroads. In fact, three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, would have to go through Israel unless they traveled by water. You have to go look at your maps when you get home. But they would have to go through Israel during this time if they didn't go by water. They were at the crossroads. And God had a little different plan at this time. God took Israel and he had them build a temple in Jerusalem. And that temple was to worship him in order that they might witness to their God by serving him. And the people from these other locations, these other continents, came and observed that. So you see... The, the people came to the temple. The people came to Israel. The people came to God in a way. And that's all Jonah knew. And now, Jonah is told, go. And he probably said to himself, I never heard this plan before. It sure is a change. And it did change as we moved to the New Testament. Because Jesus told his disciples, Go ye into all the world. Start at Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of this world. He told them to go. The plan changed. And that's the commissioning that you and I are under. We're to go. We're to, we're to take the gospel. And see, I think this caught Jonah offhand. Uh, Jonah's probably a lot like Simon Peter. You know, kind of hard-headed too. And so both of them had to deal with this, you know. What's the new strategy? Why the new strategy? Why are we doing things different? But God had different plans. 
Now, we have to be careful as a church who's building a, a new sanctuary. Praise God for that opportunity. What a beautiful sanctuary it is. Praise God for the people responding and for what we're going to have here in a matter of months or years. But we have to be careful that we don't think that edifice is going to draw the people in. See, we have, we're under the commissioning of the New Testament, which says go. And so our charge is to, whether we go door to door, or whether we do relationship evangelism, or whether we do, um, you know, friendship evangelism, uh, regardless of what we do, we're, we're called to do the work of an evangelist. And if we really don't feel like we can do evangelism work, we still should be inviting people to come. You see, we can't just build that place and say, there it is, now the people will come. That's, that's baseball where they have that story. If they build it, they will come. That's that, what's the name of that movie? Field of Dreams? Yeah. This is, this is God's house. This is God's church. This is where God's presence will be. And we've got to bring the people, make sure that we bring them in. But I want you to see as, as a part of Jonah's dilemma, he didn't know that type of plan of going. Okay, the, the fourth thing about his dilemma was, this is another word, he had a question about theodicy. And that's, that's the question of whether God's compassion, compassionate act, actions were just. He didn't always think that, that God was right in his compassionate actions, and he objects to it. And then Jonah typifies those who see the divine attributes of justice and mercy as functioning for their convenience, not others. And so this is his dilemma. All right, with that as a background, let's move into uh, the rest of the chapter for this evening. I'm going to go through this either one verse or a couple verses at a time. So I'll tell you, read it, and then make some comments about it. Okay, starting with verse 1. Uh, now, before I read verse 1, Jonah stopped talking in chapter 3, verse 4. He'd been doing some talking. He went, went into Nineveh, did his speech, did what, what he thought God told him to say, and then he's quiet. In verse 5, it's God, God observing Nineveh and, of course, not bringing judgment upon them. So Jonah hasn't talked since verse 4 of chapter 3, but now he talks, and it's not good. But it displeased Jonah. What displeased? What he saw God do with Nineveh. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and look what it says. He became angry. His reaction was he was exceedingly displeased. Now that's a great contrast to what God saw in chapter 3, verse 10. God was pleased. So you see they are, Jonah and God are diametrically opposed. They have different viewpoints on the subject of Nineveh. And old hardhead Jonah, he's going to tell us his view. Don't you think Jonah was probably a strong-willed child? I bet he gave his parents fits when he was growing up. Some of you that have strong-willed, you know, we had one of ours was that way. Don't you spend a lot of energy on them? Well, I think Jonah was one of the one of the tops as far as being a strong-willed child. And he's not pleased as we see in verse 1. Now, verses 2 and 3. So, he prayed. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, 
slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't know how he prayed with the attitude he had in verse 1. But it says, he prayed. But he's, it's not a pleasing prayer. And in it, he gives a kind of a detailed description of God. Now, how did Jonah know about how God was? They had some of the scripture. You remember chapter 2 when he prayed in the belly of the fish? He prayed a, a bunch from Psalms. Now, I think maybe, perhaps, he gets his information from Exodus 34. Hold your place. Turn back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, starting with verse 5. Because this description that we have here and, and what we just read in Jonah is very, um, very consistent with what the Hebrew perception of God would be. Look at verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and with Moses and proclaimed the, proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, same kind of language, that Jonah just used. Merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. See, Jonah knew it. And that's how he could, that's how he could use the language that he used in verse 2 and 3. But Jonah is still critical of the divine attributes of God. And he sees them, and I don't know how he does this, but he sees them as a divine weakness. Jonah sees these as weaknesses in God. He complains against them several times. He thinks he's weak. Uh, and so what's his response? Take my life. Take my life away from me. Um, and here's something that he forgets. He is a recipient of God's grace and mercy. You remember while he was in the fish? He prayed out. God answered his prayer, was gracious and merciful to him. And now here you have another group of people and he's mad because God is gracious and merciful to him. Do you see the incongruity in it? He's complaining about their reception of grace while all the time he received it. It's really quite a deal. But I told you, he's hard-headed. Verse 4, then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Probably some silence between verse 3 and verse 4. And then God says, is it right for you to be angry? What's God saying to him? Do you have that right to be angry, Jonah? Is the fact that I'm doing good displeasing to you? And here we have again the hard head working. Jonah gets mad at God because he's not angry at the Ninevites. God challenges Jonah about his anger. And then as often happens when we're in rebellion against God, it's happened to me, maybe it's happened to you, God starts turning up the heat. When we're rebellious, when we're disobedient, when we continue to turn our back on God, when we, when we continue to be hard-hearted or hard-headed, he turns up the heat. Now, verse 5, Jonah 
pouts. The strong-willed child, the hardhead, he pouts. And so Jonah goes out of the city, and he, he goes to sit on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He wants to find a place where he can observe what's going on in Nineveh. Now, he's still determined to persevere. He doesn't want God to do what he has seen God do with the Ninevites. And here's what I think he, he thinks is going to happen. God, come with me. Let's watch. And they'll blow it. They're going to blow it. They're going to blow it. And God, you'll have to judge them. Because I know these Ninevites. Why else does he pout and walk away to observe what the Ninevites are doing? Now, he does something. He makes himself comfortable. He shelters himself. And he gets comfortable. And so here's Jonah asking for the presence of God to watch the show that he believes will end in the Ninevites being judged. Now, verse 6. The Lord helps him out. He's got a, a place of shade that he's created. But it's hot. It's, it's very hot. And so the Lord God prepared a plant. And he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Notice, so Jonah was very grateful for the plan. Like the fish, the gourd is commissioned by God to provide shelter for him. And Jonah's happy. Jonah's pleased. Uh, his, his mood, you see, is entire, entirely transformed. And uh, he likes this shade. He's pleased. Now, I want to talk to you about something I think is very dangerous for a Christian. And again, the reason I think it's dangerous is because I think I see it here in Jonah, and I'm afraid from time to time I see it in my life. It scares me. And uh, perhaps you've thought about it, perhaps you haven't. But I want to share with you, I think, a real danger for Christians. And that is self-love. Loving a self. If we're not careful, we can get eat up by it as believers. The love of self. See, things get convenient. Things get good for Jonah. And he's quite pleased. He's very pleased. Um, and we've got to watch it. Now, some of you uh, heard me last week uh, read something. I want to read just a short paragraph in here about self-love by Fenelon. Written in the 1600s. We Christians must bear our crosses. In my opinion, self is the greatest cross of them all. We cannot get rid of the weight of that cross until we see that there is nothing that can be done about our condition, that we can only tolerate ourselves as we do our neighbor and surrender ourselves to God. If we surrender and die to self every day of our lives, there won't be much to do on the last day of our lives. The uncertainties of death will cause no fear when our day comes. If we do not allow these uncertainties to be exaggerated by the worries of self-love, be patient with your weaknesses and be willing to accept help from your neighbor. You will find out in the end that these little daily deaths will completely destroy the pain of our final dying. Does that mean that, that if I die through a, a period of time, that if I continue to die to myself and stop loving self, that it's going to be easier at my death? I think that's exactly what it means. Now, I don't know what my, how, how my death's going to go down. Um, my wife and I have uh, five in our family who have died who are older. Her parents, 
my parents, my brother. That's five deaths. Four of those happened like there. My dad was a railroad man stealing a lumber car one minute, the next minute he was dead. My dad, my brother was jogging in California one minute, the next minute he's dead. And her, her parents the same way. My mother lived a long age and went through this, the suffering. So we don't know how death is going to come to us. But I tell you what, I certainly want to have dying grace if I have to go through the process. And I think the way that I have dying grace, the way that I receive it, is to die to myself daily. And in dying to myself, I can get rid of that self-love. I think God wants that to happen in my life. Now, you choose. You know, what about you? Uh, how does self-love come down? It comes down in a lot of ways. Um, we have five grandchildren. Love them to death. Love of our lives. Laverne and I just love them to death. But they'll come to our place sometimes. And then when four of them come, their, their mom and dad come. And, and another grandson comes. And pretty soon we got 11 or 12. And they're all over the house. Now, we don't have a big house. But they're all over the house. And the first day, and the second day, the third day, things are wonderful. And you're hugging and squeezing, having great times. But around the fourth day, the fifth day, I mean, you come home and you're holding two or three. And one of them's, one of them's hitting you in the stomach. And uh, come on, Papa, read me a book. Oh, come on, Papa, hit baseball. And you're going here and there. And, everywhere, and you start to wear down a little bit. Now, maybe you're not like me. But I start loving myself. Man, when they're not here, I can watch Sports Center anytime I want to. I can see what's going on. ESPN is quiet in the house. Uh, there's not things. Where I, can, I can actually walk through the house and not trip over things. You see how self-love can come? It, it can really creep in to where we love our conveniences and we love what we want to do and we really fall in love with self. I think one of the beauties, Jerry, and you people went to Brazil is when you go to Brazil like we did with 32 people, there ain't too much room for self-love. You're with 32 people everywhere they want to go. And some of them you've got to wait on, and, and some of them, especially the women, and all these things, all these things are happening. You can't, you can't, you've got to be patient. You've got to work with them. And I think it's helped me, Jerry, a little bit to, you know, to, to battle that thing. But I think it's a, a dangerous thing for a Christian to fall in love with self. Now, God loves you. But you're, just, you're supposed to die to yourself. That's part of letting go and abandoning yourself to God. All right, verse 7. But as the, let's go 7 and 8. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared, prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself. And he said again, It is better for me to die than to live. Here we're introduced to two opposite, opposite aspects of God's sovereign, divine nature. Because we must understand this, that God not only delivers, but as we've seen, he also destroys. God delivers, but he also destroys. And we have to, we have to trust his sovereignty to accept that. His, he's not restricted to acts of compassion alone. He does bring things to an end, does he not? And that is done within his sovereignty too. Think of what the words of Job 
when he was suffering and going through all the tough stuff. What did he say? He said, I was naked when I was born. I'll be naked when I die. The Lord gives, that same Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And see, when you get to that position where you can say that, then I think you're, you're dealing with the love of self. And you're crucifying self the way God wants you. Denying self the way you're supposed to. And living for Christ. But it's both, in, both of those things are in there. He delivers. You see that in here? He delivered. He provided a gourd. But he also provided a worm. And he also provided sun that destroyed Jonah's situation. And uh, Jonah, again, he doesn't like it. Oh, hardhead. Um, God is turning up the heat. Um, now, why didn't Jonah move? Why did old hardhead stay there? I mean, he's, he's got sunstroke. Any, anybody ever think about that? Why didn't he move even if he's so miserable under the heat and everything? I, I, I wondered about that. But he didn't. He stayed right there until he got sunstroke. Now, verses, verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah again says, It's right for me to be angry even to death. You bet you, God, I've got a right to be angry. And I'm not going to be silent. And furthermore, I want to die. I've had it. I can take no more. I gave you an opportunity to reverse your decision. You didn't reverse it. You're inconsistent, God. One minute you bring comfort, the next minute you bring destruction. I see no rationale in all of this that you're doing, God. And he finally says, God's ways are beyond me. And that's when I think we can say hallelujah, because he surrendered. He gave up, and he shuts up. That's the last you hear of Jonah. Hardhead gives up and surrenders to the sovereignty of God. Now listen, listen to the last words of God in verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, You had pity on the plant for which you had not labored. I provided you that plant. You didn't make it grow, and it came up in the night, and it perished in the night. But you had pity on that, Jonah. Verse 11. And why shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city, 120,000 plus, uh, and people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock. What's God saying? Jonah, you see absurdity in what I do. I see an awful lot of absurdity in what you've done. You had compassion on a plant and you're hard-hearted toward an entire city. That's inconsistent. In addition, God says, these people don't have a lot of moral perception. They can't determine their right hand from the left. We're talking about people that we would call heathens or pagans. They need the grace of God. Don't you understand that, Jonah? And I think the final lesson that, that we must learn is God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign in our lives and will always be. And whether we like it or not, He has the right to deliver and destroy. No one likes to be on the destroying end. No one likes to lose. No one likes to hear their prayers answered no. And he certainly wants us to pray, asking that the prayers would be yes. But the fact is he's sovereign. That he's in control. And when we acknowledge that he's sovereign, dying to self, 
dying to that love that we have for self, then we can let God move into our lives and do what we hear so often, be conformed to the image of his son. Because he's in charge. We're not. He's the one that's in charge. So why don't we surrender? You know the song, I Surrender All? All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Would you stand with me? I just want you to sing that chorus with me and I'll close out in prayer. But uh, I think it would be appropriate. And if your heart and if God is speaking to you in, in any, any area and you need to surrender, just give it up. Give it to him. Let him be the sovereign God. You know the song, I Surrender All? We're just going to sing the chorus. And I don't sing very well, so y'all sing with me. Um, when I was at another church, when we'd sing like this, everybody would say, what key are we going to sing in? And I'd say, the key of Jeff. <laughs> That's a sliding key. That can be anywhere, and it changes from one note to the next. So that's the key we'll sing in, because nobody, nobody musical, there's no piano here. I surrender all. You ready? I surrender all. You got it. I surrender all. All to be my blessed Savior. I surrender all. And Father, that's a confession of our hearts. We recognize that you're sovereign. We recognize that uh, you change not. We recognize that you're merciful, that you're, that you're just, that you're loving, that you're omnipotent, that you're omnipresent, that, that all those qualities belong to you and they've never changed. You've always been those things. And yet you want us to change. And we're willing to give to you our lives in surrender that you might make us to be the Christians who are being conformed daily to the image of your Son. Lord, help us to give up. Help us to die to self and live to Christ because we do surrender all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a good week. Be back next Wednesday. Jim Umlauf, worship.